кадре, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. Эстонский премьер-министр Кая Калас Financial Times, when she said her country and the other Baltic states would be wiped from the map under existing NATO war plans in the event of a Russian invasion. Kalas also called on the alliance to accelerate their military assistance to Ukraine before war fatigue takes hold in the West and Russia makes territorial gains that could become permanent. And as the world's largest contributor of military aid to Ukraine as a percentage of GDP, Estonia has been putting its money where its mouth is, and the other Baltic states are not far behind. Kalas's rhetoric and actions and those of other Baltic leaders contrast sharply with that of European leaders like French President Emmanuel Macron and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who have dragged their feet on providing assistance, repeatedly warned against humiliating Russia, and called on Ukraine to negotiate with the aggressor. NATO's most vulnerable members are also the most hawkish, because they understand that should Russia succeed in subjugating Ukraine, then history suggests that they could be next. So today, we're going to take a look at how the war in Ukraine looks from the alliance's front line. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlanta Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from New York City is veteran journalist Michael Weiss, news director at the New Lines Magazine, contributing editor at the Daily Beast, and director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Michael also just returned from Estonia, where he delivered a speech about aid to Ukraine and interviewed Prime Minister Kaya Kallas. Welcome back to The Vertical, Michael. Thanks for having me, Brian. Thanks for coming on. So, Michael, I, I know you delivered a keynote address on Estonian assistance to Ukraine in, um, in, in Tallinn, and I wanted to get to that in a bit. But I first wanted to talk about Prime Minister Kallas's remarks a few weeks back about how the current NATO war plan could allow, would allow the Balts to be occupied for 180 days before the alliance would even attempt a liberation. Those comments made in the run-up to the NATO summit in Madrid caused a lot of hand-wringing and pearl-clutching in Europe. What, what was the prime minister hoping to accomplish with this warning, and was she successful? Did NATO get the message from your perspective? I mean, I don't know what the, uh, the NATO war plans look like, and I don't know how they're going to evolve on the back of, of those remarks. I mean, I, I just think what the prime minister was referring to is, is simply commonsensical in a sense that, you know, I mean, Estonia is a frontline state. Uh, the Russians would, would obviously move into the Baltics very quickly should there be some major war with not just those countries, but with NATO at large. Uh, similar to the way that they moved in in 1939 uh, on the back of the Hitler-Stalin pact, carving up Europe. Um, most of Estonia is very flat country. So, I mean, you know, the, 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 the natural defenses there are the forests, right? I mean, it's, this is why um, in the 1940s and 50s, even after Soviet reoccupation, you had the so-called forest brothers who were fighting an insurgency against the occupier. So I don't, I don't think what she said... Um, I mean, I know it was it was, as you said, uh, met with some pearl clutching, clutching, but um, not terribly controversial just to look at the map. Now, as far as occupying for 180 days, I mean, look, um, I would I would take this in, in, into um, 
you know, put this in the proper context. Uh, Russia is in, in no state right now, and I, I doubt it even was before the invasion of Ukraine in February 24th, to go to war with NATO. Um, and whether that would be, you know, first marching into Tallinn and Riga and Vilnius, um, you know, collective security is still a thing. Article 5 is is a, a uh, you know, sacrosanct covenant of any member for any member state in the alliance. So an attack on one is an attack on all. NATO would be involved. And, you know, the nature of the war, I mean, I leave to military analysts to 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 de to decide what it would look like, um, I, I certainly would hope it wouldn't escalate into something nuclear or involving WMD. But I mean, if anything, we've seen Brian in the last five months, Russia can barely fight a war against a country, an adversary that was ranked uh, much lower in terms of its manpower, its resources, its military technological capability. I mean, Ukraine. I just got back from Kiev too. Uh, I was there three weeks ago before I went to Estonia. Ukraine is not doing nearly as badly as some in the Western press would have you believe. Um, tactically, there have been losses, Sverdonetsk, Lysychansk, but strategically, I think uh, the momentum is still with them. Uh, you're seeing now what the provision of HIMAR, um, long-range artillery rocket systems are doing, taking out Russian command centers, airfields, mm -hmm. uh, ammunition depots. Um, the word on the street among Estonian, uh, Ukraine or Russian-Ukraine war watchers, who I, I I esteem very highly, I think they've gotten the pace and the trajectory of this conflict a lot better than than you know observers in Western Europe and North America have, is that by the end of the summer, early fall, there will be a Ukrainian counteroffensive in Kherson in the south. So look, I mean, I think you know Prime Minister Kalas has a job to do, uh, not just for her country, but also for the West. She has been, and as you mentioned, I, I, I spent 20 minutes with her. I interviewed her, uh, and I hope to publish the interview soon. Um, she has been a real stalwart, um, very principled, very categorical in in her prescriptions for what needs to happen. Um, you mentioned Emmanuel Macron and Olaf Scholz, the kind of weak links in the European alliance. Um, that's now with the Italian government falling today, I'm a little worried about that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, look, um, she's 43 years old. Uh, she's been an MEP, so she knows the European Union well. She knows Brussels well. Um, she's incredibly well-spoken, incredibly well-read, and I say that not just because she read my book on ISIS and had me sign it in her company, which was very flattering, um, but uh, you know, her job is to essentially keep the focus on making sure that Russia loses this war and that Ukraine wins it, and also, I mean, to allude to what uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said, apparently, evidently very controversially uh, to the ears of the President of the United States, Joe Biden, uh, the strategic objective has got to be that Russia cannot wage an offensive, another war of aggression, a war of conquest like this in the short to mid to even long term future. Um, and I mean, one of the things to realize, you alluded to the Estonian security and also humanitarian assistance. They have spent almost 40 percent of their annual military budget on Ukraine. They have spent 0.8 percent of their GDP on Ukraine. And to uh, those who would, would ask why, I think the best response came from their chief of staff, who was asked in a press conference, you know, why are we sending Javelin anti-tank missiles and all the weapons we would need to defend ourselves in the event of a Russian invasion? To which the chief of staff replied, uh, this is not charity. You know, every Russian tank that's destroyed in Ukraine is one less Russian right. tank that could invade Tallinn. Um, so they see this as not simply a moral imperative, you know, uh, defending a vulnerable European nation state from an act of, of wanton aggression, an act of genocide, as most Estonians would, 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 would 
characterize it, and as I would characterize it, frankly. Um, but also the International Criminal Court would characterize it. Indeed, but. indeed. Um, I mean, you know, if Prime Minister Collis's mother, I think at only three to four months old, was put on a um, on a wagon and, and deported to Siberia. In 1941, as part of you know the Stalinist, essentially the the, the you know the forced population transfer of, of of Estonians who were deemed to be, well, just in the way essentially of of Russian hegemony. Um, and now we we have seen, and there's been incredible reporting. In fact, I think um, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken tweeted just yesterday about Russian yep. filtration camps, which have removed as many as, what, two million uh, yes. Ukrainians, um, hundreds of thousands of children. Um, you know, these camps, military-aged men who may have tattoos or any kind of emblem suggesting that they're patriots. And by that, I don't mean what the Russians mean by that, which is that they're part of the Azov regiment or far-right, quote-unquote, neo-Nazis. They just believe in their country and they're proud of their country. These men are separated from their families and, you know, either detained indefinitely or worse, disappeared, really. Yeah, this is a uh, program I want to do in the near future. I'm, I'm yeah, looking for should. experts who are tracking this. I just, I, I'm having a hard time finding the right people to talk to about that. Right. And from the Estonian perspective, you know, Estonia today is a, a country of 1.3 million people. So to, 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 it, it, is, it is morally untenable. It is shocking. It is horrifying that a, a population greater than their entire country has been forcibly removed from their homes in Ukraine at the barrel of a gun, the, uh, you know, and, and, and essentially separated men, women and children. And some of the men simply are, are never to be heard from again. Um, this this has the, the, you know, rather disturbing echoes of 1939, 1941. So look, it's important. I mean, you know, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, not somebody I'm, I'm, I'm given to, to quoting. I think he had a very good and in, in hindsight, rather prescient observation when he referred to new versus old Europe. Um, you know, uh, frontline states, the Baltic countries, uh, Poland, um, the Czech Romania. Republic, yeah, Romania, Slovakia. I mean, these are countries, you know, they were either part of the Soviet Union or in the Warsaw Pact. They, they, they don't need to, tutorials. They don't need to be lectured, least of all by commentators writing for the New York Times op-ed page on, on what the Russian government has in mind uh, and what it would do if it had its druthers and if NATO membership hadn't expanded to these areas. Uh, to those countries and to its people. Uh, and so for them, you know, to be a kind of beacon of clarity and also strategic foresight, this is the most important thing. As I say, you know, humanitarian imperatives, uh, sympathy, uh, you know, um, just general, uh, quote unquote, gravely concerned, as the diplomats like to put it, uh, about the, about, you know, atrocities, war crimes, crimes against humanity, these things peter out. But what, what I think the Estonians have alighted upon rather correctly is that, you know, they are making a long term investment in ensuring that Russia cannot pose a threat uh, to any neighboring right. countries. Uh, and I think that's that's a, that's a strategic investment that the United States would be idiotic not to to buy into. Right. Yeah. And you mentioned the, 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 the how much aid Estonia is giving to Ukraine defense and security aid I actually looked up the top five donors um, as a percentage of GDP. Yeah. And they are Estonia, Latvia, Poland, the U.S., uh, Lithuania. And, and, that, and that that's the top five, basically. Yep. 
Um, and, I mean, in absolute terms, the U.S. is far away ahead of everybody. But as a percentage of, of the GDP, the Balts make up three of the top five, and frontline NATO states make four of the top five. Um, right. And the other, the other, of course, being the United States. One thing the prime minister didn't mention in her Financial Times interview is the size of Estonia. If you look at, like, I mean, we have to bear in mind, tech, uh, Ukraine is a country the size of Texas, roughly. Right. Estonia is a country roughly the size of the state of Maine. Right. right. And if you look at and I haven't done the math on this, but if you look at what is occupied already in Ukraine, it's probably more than the entire territory of Estonia. Yes, I would that's yeah. I mean, I um, drove the length of Estonia from Tallinn in the north to Ottawa in the south. Um, I was invited uh, to uh, former President Tomas uh, Hendrik Ilves's farm in Ottawa, where his family has been living since the 18th century. And it, it takes about two and a half hours to drive right. lengthwise the, the entire country. Now, you can, I think, drive across well, actually, to get to Estonia, I was stuck in four hours of traffic to get to Newark Airport. So, I mean, <laughs> it's yeah, I mean, and again, to her point, Russian tanks roll in. Of course, they're going to be in a position to occupy the, the, the country rather swiftly. The question is, you know, what is the, the trigger mechanism for collective security? And, and look, the other the other thing to keep in mind is you, you have this refrain in the United States. Well, who, who cares about Estonia? Most Americans can't find it on the map. Would you die for Narva if little green men smuggled across the border into, you know, the, the most populous uh, uh, area of the country where Russian speakers and ethnic Russians reside and all this stuff? But people need to appreciate something. Estonia didn't balk on September 12th, 2001, when they realized they were going to have to go to war on behalf of an attack on the United States in Afghanistan. I think they've lost more soldiers um, proportionately than a lot of other countries uh, in our, meaning the Americans, at least the psychological periphery of Western Europe that, that, that you know went to war and occupied Afghanistan. Uh, and again, for them, Ukraine is, is rather close to their neck of the woods. Um, there, there's more here than, than just military assistance. There's also intelligence um, sharing and intelligence rehabilitation. Um, I was in Kyiv in January, just before the war, to get a sense of why Ukrainians were not panicked. And I spent a, 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 at least two good hours with Kaimo Kusk, who's the Estonian ambassador to Ukraine, uh, speaks fluent Russian, knows the land, knows the people, knows the country incredibly well. Uh, we had had to meet at a restaurant in Kyiv because that day the Estonian embassy, as well as a host of other embassies, including all the Baltic state embassies, had been um, fielding bomb threats from actors we can only guess at. And, you know, this was at a time when, you know, the Americans, the, the Brits were saying war is inevitable, but also saying Kyiv will be toast in 72 hours. You know, Ukraine needs to, to, to brace itself for the destruction of the country and the loss of sovereignty. Zelensky could be assassinated. I mean, all the worst case apocalyptic scenarios. And, and Ambassador Kusk was saying, look, uh, I think that this idea that uh, Ukrainian air defense systems will be taken out within a matter of minutes is absolutely nonsense. He said, even with stingers, even with certain, um, you know, cannons, the Ukrainians will be able to down, fix, down fixed wing Russian fighter jets. I said, well, why do you say that? Stingers are used more for helicopters as they were in Afghanistan. He said, well, because uh, Sukhois and MiGs are going to be flying at low altitude because of bad winter weather conditions. And also keep in mind, they don't have many precision guided munitions. They have dumb bombs. And in order to, for dumb bombs to meet their targets, you have to fly lower, right? Because it's just right. a, a matter of physics. And he was right. We've seen the evidence of right. flaming wreckage of Russian aircraft right. falling out of the sky. And this was before 
you know, they had, um, well, I mean, they still really rely mostly on, on, on man pads and whatever Soviet era air defense systems they have. They haven't got the NASAMs, the Norwegian system, which can protect entire population centers and possibly forestall, you know, the bombing of shopping malls like we saw today. Um, and also, like, you know, Ambassador Kuz was saying things like, you know, keep in mind the SBU, the most notorious intelligence service in Ukraine, which in 2014 was completely penetrated by Russian agents, right? I mean, this was Swiss cheese, this service. He's like, this is not the SBU of 2014. This was 20, you know, 22. He said, this is this is a service that's been rehabilitated. It's been reformed. It's been professionalized. The Americans have helped. The British have helped, and the Estonians, which have a very excellent intelligence capability, mm-hmm. have also helped them weed out, you know traitors and fifth columnists and all that. And lo and behold, Brian, I mean, this is kind of extraordinary in, in, in hindsight. Since February 24th, have you read or seen any evidence of essentially, you know, double agents in the SBU who who turned on the on the country and sold out their campaign? I mean, I, I'm sure there are examples. That I have haven't been- seen anything. I just saw something today about fears about this in the Orthodox Church, but I haven't seen anything about right. it in the internet. Services. Right. So, I mean, again, the, the fifth column that wasn't here is a, is a massive story that hasn't really right. delved into. And, and again, maybe I'm wrong about this and maybe this has all been hushed up, but I think some of it would have leaked by now. And, and that, that, that is also a, a testament to not just Estonia, but as I say, Western countries, security assistance going back to, you know, right after Crimea. So th- there's been a long, steady accrual of, you know, helping Ukraine essentially incorporate itself more into Europe. And now what we're seeing is they're becoming a NATO standardized military without the privilege and I guess the benefit of, of joining the alliance, um, which is also kind of unfathomable as, right. as, as you know, January, February, like the stuff that we're sending them, nobody would have said we would, we would be sending them now. Right. Uh, and that's the result of their having essentially won the first phase of the war and shown that they're quite good at using Western kit. Their absorption rate is high, right? Yeah, no, and um, on the, I mean, on the prime minister's remark, I'm still, I'm, I'm, I'm very fixated on what she was trying to do. She was trying to like light a fire under NATO. Those remarks yeah. were not accidental, and they happen at a time when, actually, Baltic security is probably on the cusp of being much better than it was with the with the with the ascension of, of, of Finland and Sweden into NATO, which is going to kind of change the security equation. I mean, she seemed to be suggesting that the tripwire, the advanced foreign presence in the Baltic states was not enough to defend it. And NATO seems to need to change its calculus for how to defend the Baltics in the early stage of a hypothetical and at this point unlikely war with Russia. But nevertheless, the, you, if you're the Baltics, you have to prepare for the worst, worst case scenario, right? Right. And you also, I mean, for, for as shambolic as the Russian military has been, I mean, just utterly stupid tactics and and techniques uh, i mean and and you know i mean we've seen sabotage in the ranks we've seen a kind of dysfunction and level of corruption and backwardness um and the estonians will be the first to tell you uh, the, the line i heard is there is no second gear for russia in this war they see it as either going to be a prolonged stalemate if not ukraine steadily chipping away they have to balance that assessment with something else which is they don't want the west to get the impression that russia is a pygmy um, they're not 10 feet tall, but nor are they, you know, right. two micrometers tall. Uh, and they want to fortify the eastern flank. So I think, you know, if, if, if I may, I mean, there's I, there was obviously a political calculation there when the prime minister was saying that, that NATO needs to now really appreciate Russia has the willingness and the capacity to invade its next door neighbor. And if it chooses to do so in the Baltic states, 
you know, NATO has to respond much more swiftly than it, it perhaps, I guess, had, had right. imagined before. Um, Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say the, the other thing that 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 Collis has been dealing with is a domestic political crisis, the the collapse of her coalition government. Um, when I met her, I forget which day this was, but she was in between meetings, jockeying back and forth to basically stand up a new government with herself, obviously at the helm, which she's now managed to do. So, you know, one of the things though that that that's remarkable about Estonia, with the exception of the far right Ekre party, um, there's a great deal of cohesion and unity of worldview on the threat posed by Russia. And there's also a great deal of sentiment that NATO uh, and the United States need to invest in this right. part of the world and ensure that it can't be threatened right. or taken over. So Yeah, no, notably the center party, which used to be kind of hugue over to the to the yeah. the, the, the uh, pro, pro-Russian uh, position has, has, has effectively changed its its orientation almost entirely. Michael, yeah. I know you were in Tallinn to give a keynote about uh, aid to Ukraine. Um, what were the main points you made in that keynote? I think I made most of them just already, Uh, you know, the the percentage of GDP, uh, the military budget. um, And also, you know, I I guess another theme um, which was pressed upon me years ago by by President Ilvis uh, is that, you know, for for many, many years, going back two decades, probably even more, frankly, I mean, you know, the Estonians were hip to, you know, the long term threat posed by Russia, even when when Yeltsin was in power. Um, but there's been this general sense that, you know, after the Cold War, uh, and certainly after 9-11, the United States looked to the Baltic states, the frontline states, and said, okay, guys, now, now you're part of NATO, you've got everything you wanted, you've been liberated, you have your independence back, let's stop banging on about, you know, the grizzly bear next door and, and all of the horrible things that, that it might do. Um, you know, there was a sense of, of placation and condescension, patting the scruffy little Baltic state on the head saying, oh, that's, that's adorable. You're still obsessed with Russian active measures and Russian intelligence ops and the threat of Russian conventional, if not unconventional warfare when we're dealing in the age of sacred terror. Right. We're, we're, we're going after non-state actors and insurgents and et cetera, et cetera. And I, I mean, you know, the Estonians are a very um, modest people in a good way. Um, and I think they're too modest to basically say, as Robert Conquest was said to have wanted to rename the title of the great terror, I told you so, you fools. But I'll say it. I mean, they right. told us so repeatedly on a, on, a, on a variety of different issues. Um, and, you know, I was just talking with somebody uh, recently about, in fact, it's Mark Polymeropoulos, former CIA officer, who said that, you know, the Estonians have better intelligence collection capability than we do um, when it comes to the Russians. Yeah, uh, they the put Russians, out, absolutely. And the Lithuanians do too. And Lithuanians, they put out these annual reviews, both the Foreign Intelligence Service and Capo, yeah. domestic or FBI, about, um, you know, security threats, not just spies, but, you know, malign actors, fake NGOs, um, pseudo civil society organizations that are very clearly working to advance the Kremlin interests. And they do this because it's just an existential issue for them. You know, Um, you know, I don't know if it's if it's if it's an asset or a liability to have one preternatural national security threat and just obsess over it. Certainly it's an asset when that security threat becomes an international one and then you become to the world. So, yeah, I I go to Tallinn and I I am there to learn because I feel like we have a lot, and we, uh, who are not a modest people, I'm sorry to say, <laughs> you know, we still have yet to kind of cotton on to the fact that these guys got it right, we got it wrong. And yeah, I think and President, so President Ilves, the, 
President, President Elvis, Elvis been and also I've been outspoken about that actually. Yes. Um, and also President Elvis, I mean, he's also American too, so he has a a very commanding, authoritative sense about this. He grew up in in New Jersey. I mean, right. for Christ's sake. So you know, but but you know, I think I, I got the sense from Prime Minister Collis that that's that's one of her. Um, one of her goals, uh, you know, she she has meetings with the the, the leaders of European countries. Uh, she told me one of them. Uh, she didn't say who. Said, look, I, I'm I'm with you, and I get it, and I, I stand with Ukraine, and I want to do everything I can to make life difficult for the Russians. However, uh, X number of people in my country think NATO is to blame for all of this. So I have to answer to a domestic democratic constituency, and it's it's tying my hands in terms of what I can do. Uh, and sh her hands are not tied in that sense, because uh, as I say, al almost all the Estonians agree. Right. With the, um, and I can't help but recall when you and I interviewed the head of Capo back in what well, must have been 2017 or 2018 when we were in Tallinn after after one of their intelligence reports came out. Um, and this leads me to the before we move into the second half, where I'm going to completely shift gears to something else. But. Um, what you've been saying about how the Balts have gotten it right, and, and I've, I've, I've been saying this as well, leads me to think as we enter what appears to be a new Cold War, because um, we, we, are, we are heading into that kind of a Cold War posture, certainly, mm -hmm. regardless of how the Ukraine war ends. Um, as we head toward that, is there a Baltic model for fighting this new Cold War? What can we draw from them that can help us going forward, because I think this is where the answer to this puzzle is going to, 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 to lie. It's going to lie in places like Tallinn and like Vilnius and like Riga. You know, it's funny um, because another aspect of, of going to a country like Estonia and just seeing how, you know, government is sort of there to cater to the needs of its citizens to allow them to live a, 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 a very utilitarian and efficient life. I mean, as I, said, I mentioned earlier, I drove the length of the country two and a half hours from Pre President Ilibus's farm back to Tallinn. And one of the things I noticed was that the roads, many of which are are, are paved with EU subsidies, right? Mm -hmm. But the Estonians, you know, unlike, say, Viktor Orban, who shakes down <laughs> the EU and takes money to give it to his cronies and steals, the Estonians, you know, in, in, in very pragmatic Northern European tradition, they take all the boxes, they provide receipts, they actually do what is asked of them. These roads were the smoothest roads I've driven in, in, in ages, to the point where we saw what looked to be an ambulance with the red siren blaring coming at us. And Elvis goes, oh, no, that's that's just like the emergency road service. And I said to him, well, they must have found a pothole somewhere in the country that they're going to fill because you know, there are none. I mean, I can't drive down the road here in Queens without, like, you know, breaking the, the axle off my tire. I mean, it's like it, it's it's incredible. And now, look, I mean, I caveat this, my to be sure paragraph, as it were, is that it's a small country, culturally homogeneous. There, as I said, there's a great deal of social cohesion. But there is something to be said for a state that has kind of fashioned itself as a what I'm calling a digital concierge state. You can pay your taxes in five minutes. You can basically do anything online except get married or get divorced, which you have to do in person, I think, for good reason. Um, <laughs> you know, I mentioned their intelligence gathering capabilities. Um, their counterintelligence capability. I mean, they they have catched. Uh, I'm sorry, catched. They have caught more Rus Russian spies annually um, for the last 
10 to 20 years. And I think all of probably Western European countries combined, at least publicly, they, they name and shame these guys. Right. They don't trade, quietly trade them back, on, except under extraordinary circumstances like the Eston Cover affair. Um, and, and, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm mindful of not being too romantic and, and mythologizing a foreign country. I mean, Americans have this tendency to do that a little bit, but I've gone there often enough, at least once a year for the last decade or so, and I've seen sort of what can be, um, you know, when, when a society gets its act together. And I think, un unfortunately, so much of this is just the, the function of having the, the solidarity of, of shared trauma, right? Having emerged from the yoke of Soviet uh, occupation, uh, everybody in the country does, remembers 1939, 1941. They've heard the stories. Their parents or their grandparents lived those stories. Um, you know, something like Ukraine galvanizes them in a way that it would not do the United States. And, you know, I mean, again, it's, it's, it's a sort of uh, creative or it's the, the creation born of destruction, which I think is absent here. Uh, and may be absent, frankly, until and unless, I mean, not to sound too pessimistic, but, you know, I mean, you have political actors in America talking about in, incipient civil war, unless there's some really dire right. violent cataclysm here that makes us realize what matters in the world, what, what our priorities are. I just don't see us, you know, sort of meeting that, 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 that aspiration or that, that level of, um, I don't know what you would call it, kind of, you know, per capita happiness or well it's public <laughs> it's public trust at the end of the day it's public in estonia trust. you have a very high level of public trust you have high trust mm -hmm. in institutions like you said you have social cohesion um you have a intelligence service that's incredibly vigilant and incredibly skilled um yeah. as, as 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 you said you have low corruption which i think is it cannot be underestimated you have very very low Huge corruption thing. so the and, and more to the point not it went from being one of the most corrupt states to one of the least corrupt in in a matter of like 25 years, if not less, which it, is really it, extraordinary. It ranks right? higher than the United States on Transparency International's corruption index now. It actually is the first time a, a post-Soviet state surpassed the United States. Estonia is now around yeah. the level of Canada in terms of, right. of, of, of low corruption. Um, and and um, I mean, I can't help but remember, I back, back in 2014, I was talking to some Estonian journalists right after the Russian initial Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I asked them, like, you know, what's what's the feeling in Estonia? Are people getting nervous? And like, this guy didn't look like he was old enough to shave. And he shrugged, shrugged his shoulders and said, if the Russians come, we'll go to the forest and we'll kill them just like our grandfathers did. You know, yeah. it's just like totally matter of fact. And I was like, that is so Estonian, right? You know, this, this, this exactly. matter of fact, unflappable. I mean, I'm just trying to think of these, and it's not just the Estonians, the Lithuanians as well. Um, are there things mm. we can draw from as we figure out how I mean, this new world we're going to be entering into, regardless of how this war ends, this new world of a divided Europe, of a Cold War posture, um, of, of this normative struggle with Russia and China, what can we learn from the Estonians? Uh, how much of their experience could be replicated in a big, diverse, uh, you know, polarized place country like our own? Uh, this is one of the questions I've been grappling with uh, lately. I think on the on the vigilance and the intelligence uh, side, yeah, yeah, you, there there are things that I think can be emulated there. On on, on the the, the social I mean, cohesion, like, you know, I worry. Social cohesion, I, I, I don't see a solution for that. You know, I mean, uh, you know, we witness in real time the kind of Alex Jonesization of American political discourse. Um, you know, I mean, I, 
you know, for instance, I, I don't know if you've been following the, the John Bolton coup comment yes. and its, yes. its aftermath, which now consists of elected members of Congress trolling former officers of the CIA saying, oh, you know, this doesn't take away from your accomplishments in that regard or something like this. I mean, it, you know, it, in Estonia, like, I'm sure you, you, you it just as everywhere you else, you're going to have ideologues, you're going to have cranks, you're going to have, you know, malcontents who don't have that public trust in state institutions. And look, by the way, Estonia has also been infiltrated by malign actors, uh, Russian spies, and, and even now Chinese military intelligence uh, you know, agents. But I think there's a, a, a high degree of confidence that their law enforcement, their, their intelligence mechanisms are, are there to ensure that things are, are weeded out and run smoothly. We haven't got that here. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's, you know, I, I think it's 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 next to impossible for like law enforcement. I mean, say nothing of the FBI. Look at look at that brand. Look at that reputation. Um, largely, you know, dishonestly so has been attacked since 2016. Um, right. You know, when they started looking into Russian interference here. And you know, America isn't really a country. It's a continent. You know, um, I have more in common with 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 uh, well probably a lot of people living in Tallinn than I do with people just down the road from me here in Queens who think, you know, COVID was cooked up in a CIA bio lab or that, you know, they should be popping ivermectin instead of getting the shot. I mean, it's just, yeah, it, it, it's not even polarization. I think it's it's atomization of America, American society and American electoral politics, which is the real danger. And so when you say, what, what's the model? I mean, unfortunately, a country of 1.3 million people with this sort of collective memory of what happened not very long ago. I mean, 1991 isn't that far. I mean, I was 11 years old, right? I mean, I'd have some uh, I, I was I was pushing 30, but we won't talk about that. All right, we won't talk about that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, like you say, everybody in the country is aware of it. I mean, here, what, what what's our shared? 9-11 came closest, but that was one horrific event that affected essentially two you know, areas of the country. Um, and, you know, most Americans didn't pay close attention to what was happening very far away in another part of the world they've, they've never been to. So it's not the same thing. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not here to say, like, you know, America needs to be invaded and occupied in order for it to right. get together. But dot, 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 perhaps that's the only conclusion to draw here. I mean, um, you know, and then, then you look at a country like Germany and France. I mean, half the time, I think that a, a, a sizable proportion of the German populace just really wants to be reinvaded and occupied by the Russians. You know, I mean, the political establishment certainly behaves like that half the time. Um, there's like this weird sort of masochistic element to their to their politics. Uh, and maybe that's changing now on the back of Ukraine. But, seems to be. You know, I mean, there seems to be a couple of things at play there. I think part of it is just cynical business interests on one hand. But then you also have a, a degree of naivete because Germany transformed itself. It can be Russia's tutor and, and, and hold its hand through this transformation, which is, which Russia is not interested in having its hand held or in transforming. So I think we have, we have other things at work, a mixture of cynicism and, and naivete. In, in, in as you as you go farther into Western Europe, well, that's a that's a good note to segue on. Um, in a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and shift gears and play to another one of Michael's strengths to talk about how another Russian military intervention seven years ago can provide insight into the current war in Ukraine. What are the lessons of Syria? 
I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from New York City, as I just learned from the borough of Queens, is veteran journalist Michael Weiss, news director at New Lines Magazine, contributing editor at the Daily Beast, director of special investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Michael's also author of the New York Times bestseller, ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and tune in. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... Гоном вас. С новым веком. So, Michael, there's something that's been bugging me. Um, and you're just the person to address it. If you think back to 2015, to think the early phases of Russia's armed intervention in Syria, and I had you on my program then to talk about the, that mm -hmm. in, in the early stages. Um, the, the, um, the conventional wisdom was that it was not going very well for Russia. Right? Right. It was not going well. Their, their troops were bogged down. And most of us thought that this was doomed to fail. But it didn't. Um, it all changed when Moscow shifted to this scorched earth strategy of indiscriminately bombing cities, killing civilians, and wearing down the opposition to Bashar al-Assad. And eventually, that strategy proved successful. Now, it looks to me, and this is why this is bugging me right now, is it looks to me that this is exactly what Russia is trying to do in Ukraine at the moment. Um, do you think that Syria could be a harbinger? for Ukraine? And if so, what can we do about it? What are the lessons of Syria? Well, there there, there are several lessons. Uh, one, I remember talking to people who um, absolutely share our perspective on Russia, who were basically singing from this hymn sheet that, oh, you know, it's impossible for Russia to walk and chew gum at the same time. How can they prop up this dirty war in Donbass and maintain their occupation of Crimea and also wage an intervention in Syria? And I remember thinking, well, I mean, if you study the, the Russian way of war, uh, the way they're going to wage the intervention in Syria is basically what they did in, in Chechnya, right? Um, and in Syria, they had the added benefit of not really committing very many ground force. I mean, there were hardly any ground force. You have GRU, Spetsnaz, um, Wagner. You know, been Wagner, which are essentially Putin's expendables. I mean, the United States killed 300 of these guys in Deir Zor a couple of years ago, and both MOD and Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Moscow said, wasn't us, you know, here's <laughs> holiday makers. So much for World War Three, by the way. Um, but no, I mean, what, what Russia had was essentially, I think, like a squadron of um, aircraft that just dropped bombs um, and dropped bombs on, you know, let's be very clear. I mean, they, they Putin got up at the UN Security, or the General Assembly in 2015, September 2015. I remember that speech very well. Um, exhorting the West, we need to make common cause against the new scourge of Nazism, which prior to Nazis proliferating in Ukraine was, of course, um, global jihad and, and incarnated in, in the terror group ISIS, which, as you say, I wrote a book on. And I remember thinking, right, so he's going to go in and he's going to basically salt the earth with the opposition that remains, which is fighting all at the same time, ISIS, Hezbollah, 
Iranian militias, including, frankly, the uh, expeditionary uh, arm of the IRGC, the Quds Force, the Assad regime, um, and to some degree, off and on, the Al-Qaeda franchise, Jabhat al-Nusra. Um, and he's going to have an easy time of it, because if I know the Russians, what they're going to do is basically destroy any credible alternative to Assad and then present this fait accompli. Would you rather have you know, the barbarian head choppers and crucifiers from the desert, or would you rather have this quote-unquote secular war criminal in place? And that's going to be a very easy decision, not just for the United States, but for everyone else to make. Now, what I couldn't understand at the time was, you know, I, I did a piece in the Daily Beast um, even before that speech, frankly. I, I said, I think the headline was something like, Russia puts boots on the ground in Syria. Cobbled together from various Arabic media sources, eyewitnesses in Syria who said, all of a sudden, there are all these checkpoints and they're being manned by Russians. Not, they're not being manned by Arabs and by Iranians anymore. Uh, and also, you had this Khemenim air base in Latakia being constructed. Um, it, it sort of beggared belief that nobody was ringing alarm bells about this uh, from the U.S. government side, at least, and laundering it through the, their favorite port of the New York Times, and, and saying, we need to do something before Russia directly intervenes, because that's going to turn the tide of the war. Instead, as you said, you know, you had this kind of line, or this refrain, the Obama administration kept repeating, it's going to be a quagmire for Russia. I remember some security officials, anonymous, of course, saying things like, well, good luck to you. We, we screwed up in, in, in doing anything in that country. And lo and behold, I mean, it, it was relatively easy. You know, you had even Western CIA-backed rebel groups. Their signature weapon was the uh, the tow anti-tank missile system, right. by no means equivalent to the javelins or the laws we've been giving the Ukrainians. Uh, by way of air defenses, I mean, you must be joking. You know, they were using essentially heavy machine guns to try and take down, in some cases they were successful, uh, Syrian warplanes, and 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 they, they were luckier with the helicopters. They never got Stinger missiles. They never got anything, you know, I mean, NASAMs that we're giving the Ukrainians now. I mean, they would have killed for stuff like that. Um, you know, to say nothing of NATO standard artillery systems, self-propelled howitzers, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the Russians made a quick and easy meal of the Free Syrian Army, and the United States kind of stood back. And today you'll, you'll find people, former agency guys who were still suffering from PTSD because these were their assets. These were their their right. their guys on the ground, and we just allowed a, a hostile military to, to destroy them. Uh, and whether Putin saw this as, as you know, sort of comeuppance and retaliation for Afghanistan, I'm sure that was a factor in his mind, absolutely. But one of the dangers or the negative consequences of that intervention uh, long-term was that it made us think the Russians are kind of indomitable, right? They have this, this, this direct in engagement in Syria. They've returned with a bullet. Uh, to the Middle East. They have an ex expansive intelligence capability now in the region. Um, they can do anything. And I think a lot of that unfortunately informed a lot of the military analytic community's prediction of how the war in Ukraine would go. Now, I've already alluded to why I don't think it's going to go the same way um, for Ukraine now. Sounds to me like you're saying we've learned the lessons. We're giving the Ukrainians the weapons that we didn't give the Syrians. Well, we've learned the lesson, but I think we, we learned it um, a little too late and at great cost to Ukrainian lives. I mean, what, what, what actually ended up happening was Ukraine defied our expectation. Um, I mean, I, ju I just did an interview with, with Mark Polymeropoulos again saying, do you remember back in, in January, early February, we were talking about how is the U.S. preparing for this war? And they were basically preparing for an insurgency, right? right. The collapse of the conventional military capability. That was level. everybody's assumption. Everybody's assumption. It's going to be guys like like our Estonian friends going into the forests or you know whatever, digging trend, and then you know resorting to guerrilla warfare against Russian occupiers. 
Didn't happen. Kyiv did not fall in 72 hours. In fact, the Russians were driven out of Kyiv uh, Oblast. They were driven out of most of Kharkiv, uh, and the war kind of repaired to the east and, of course, continues in this sort of stasis in the south. But the thing the Ukrainians did was they provided proof of concept. We gave them weapon systems. Uh, they used them to incredible effect. All the anti-tank stuff that they destroyed, well, you know, Russian armor in, in this kind of heap of scrap metal. Now we're giving them NATO standard artillery systems. I mean, remember, look at the debate about the HIMARS. Joe Biden wrote an op-ed in the New York Times basically justifying this and caveating, saying, I have ensured that they will not use these systems to strike inside Russian Federation territory. Well, three weeks in, they've been destroying, as I say, command centers, uh, arms deep, air, uh, ammunition depots, airfields, haven't used uh, one HIMARS system to strike inside Russia, even though to me this is a distinction without a difference because yeah. there's no such thing between defensive and offensive weaponry. I think Churchill rubbished that notion right. during World War II. If, if it can, can kill you, it's offensive, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, and now we're talking about, you know, obviously NASAMs, they're getting anti-ship missiles, they got uh, harpoons from the Netherlands, they've got brimstones from the UK. Um, I mean, when I was in Kyiv, they were already talking about long-term strategic investments in a NATO standardized air force. Um, you'll recall early days, the Ukrainian air force was saying, give us F-16s, we can fly them today, don't worry about it, give us F-16s. Actually, they don't want F-16s anymore, they want F-15s and F-18s, why? Interestingly enough, they want dual engine fighter jets. These are rugged airframes. Dual engine fighter jets in case one engine goes out or gets shot, they can still land. And second, apparently the wheels on these things are much bigger and they're necessary for Ukrainian runways, which are in, as you would imagine, post-Soviet conditions, right? Shorter and pocked. So they're already thinking, you know, 10, 15 years in the future. And, and to be honest with you, Brian, like I remember getting from GUR, Ukrainian military intelligence, I said, show me the shopping list. What is, what is your blue sky sort of list of requirements here. And literally everything on that list, with the exception of, I think they were asking for cluster munitions, which was mm, own goal, don't, don't do that. But everything else on that list, the delivery mechanisms for these, for the, these munitions, they have, they've wow. been given. So really what they want, I mean, if, if there's a top line to security assistance from their side, it's faster, faster, more and more. Give us 60 HIMARS and we'll win the war. Now, maybe they won't win the war, but what's to stop us from giving them the 60 HIMARS and finding out anyway, you know? Um, uh, the worst case scenario is they still stop Russian artillery from laying waste to whole cities and, and civilian infrastructure. So no, I, unfortunately, I mean, my Syrian friends are, you know, of, of two minds about this. On the one hand, well, they're just happy to see the Russians have their face ground into dust for a change. On the other hand, they're like, well, gee, thanks. Where were you guys when we needed your help? Mm -hmm. You know, and obviously we can get into the psychological and political, you know, uh, motives that that made Syria sacrificed on the altar of, of Russian hegemony and Ukraine not. I think, yes, frankly, let's be honest, um, a great deal of Orientalism, racism, to call it by its more conventional name. Uh, any Arab with a gun, a lot of people, certainly in, in the Western electorate, just saw as either a terrorist or a terrorist in waiting. Um, and that, you know, unfortunately uh, informed a lot of the, the debate from back in 2011 to, well, until the Russians got in there in 2015. But no, I, I, I am more guardedly optimistic about the course of the Ukraine war. I don't, I don't make predictions, but again, I, I, I am a reporter, so I talk to people who know more than I do. And both the Estonians and the Ukrainians themselves seem to think, you know, strategically, the momentum is on their side, not on the Russian side. And, but from the Russians' perspective, they are trying to replicate what they did 
in Syria, it appears to be with this scorched earth uh, policy, just wearing everybody down effectively, bombing civilians, bombing cities, wearing everybody down, right. counting on fatigue in the West. Correct. And uh, that we'll eventually just throw our hands up. And I think this is the biggest thing, the biggest problem we face right now. Um, in, in another interview, uh, Prime Minister Collis of Estonia made that point that we really have to accelerate the assistance to Ukraine because fatigue is going to set in. Right. We're not. Yeah, it's, it's, make an, another, frankly, just cynical um, calculation here, which is that Joe Biden might, might not be president in a few years and we might have an administration that just doesn't care about Ukraine, if not, is more pro-Russian. Um, and he should be front loading this in his first term. You know, yeah. in the fear of escalation, Brian, I think, look, you know, one of the one of the things the Ukrainians have done and Zelensky's made this point repeatedly, uh, Ukraine isn't just fighting for Ukraine, it's fighting for the world. But one of the things they've done at the information level uh, is debunk a whole host of bits of conventional wisdom and myths, really. Um, first, that, you know, Russia is this juggernaut that can't be stopped using conventional means. Second, uh, that any attempt to resist Putin militarily, kinetically, will result in World War III or right. significant escalation. I mean, remember all the U.S. intelligence assessments that they're about to use chemical weapons? Well, they didn't. Um, you know, I, I keep hearing, you know, they're going to use tactical nukes or, or WMD of some kind. Well, they haven't already. And they were booted out of Kiev, which was a major strategic failure and humiliation. Uh, you know, the other refrain is a, a cornered Putin is a dangerous Putin. Well, what the hell is this Putin? You know, I mean, like, you know, <laughs> you know, like how much genocide does he have to commit before we decide he's he's a pretty dangerous Putin as of now, you know? I mean, so I, I think, you know, the fear of escalation, unfortunately, we're still kind of clinging to this sort of phantom sort of epistemology. And, you know, yes, it, this is combined with, with, with war fatigue and sort of Western like, all right, Ukraine, you made your point. It's time to haul out Henry Kissinger and say, you know, we need a peace deal or whatever. But, but the other side of this is, look, and, and, and I, I want everybody who listens to this program or who reads an op-ed or, or sees a Twitter thread about how the U.S. should be forcibly imposing a diplomatic solution. Here's here's the fact. I mean, upwards of 90 percent of Ukrainians want to continue fighting. They don't want to see land for peace and they think they can win the war. So what you're arguing, if you're arguing the foregoing, is that the United States must impose something on Ukraine that Ukrainians by and large do not want. Now, there is a term in the political lexicon when a great power for the sake of either economic expediency or mere convenience uses its force to impose its own will on a lesser, more vulnerable power. And the term is imperialism. So I don't want to argue from a position of imperialism. And frankly, you know, the United States is still a superpower. You know, uh, by the way, eliminating Russia's ability to use energy security as a weapon uh, is a good thing for everybody, not just for Ukraine, and it's something we should have been doing ages ago. Um, it doesn't, in the long, in the grand scheme of things, cost the American government or the American taxpayer all that much to provide, you know, a few more HIMARS or you know more security assistance than it has done. And again, this is as the as the Estonian chief of staff said, this is not charity. This is not. We're not right. doing this simply for selfless reasons. We are doing it from a geostrategic standpoint that. You know, yes, a weakened Russia is a better uh, state of international security.
Right, yeah, um, and Secretary Austin's comments. You said they were controversial. I just think, I think the administration well, I, didn't I, want I, it said out loud. They, they, they didn't want it said out loud. It was, as uh, yeah. I think, what happened. And I think that was that was the, what that was all about. I, I still think Secretary Austin's remarks reflect the thinking of the administration. It just seems to me that POTUS didn't want that said out loud. Um, and I think that's why they 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 kind of went through the uh, the pantomime of walking that back. Um, yeah. If I remember correctly, it was leaked that 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 the president had 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 uh, had had reprimanded the secretary over that. Um, I don't know if that that was uh, whether that was true or not, but it seems to me that that was a uh, that was a, 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 a an exercise in pantomime to basically to to make it look like this this was he was out of step when in fact he was not out of step at all. Um, on this issue of these myths that Putin never backs down that that a cornered Putin is a dangerous. I mean, Maria Snegovaya and I tackled that in a recent piece in Foreign Policy. I think. Mm-hmm utterly debunking it, um, uh, showing numerous instances where, where Russia did back down. The other thing I would say is when with the, these, these, um, these calls to, for, you know, to, to pressure the Ukrainians to sue for peace, I would, I would encourage everybody to, to, to look at some history from a hundred years ago. Um, the, when the red army took over Ukraine and what happened after that, um, every Russian empire begins with Ukraine, no Russian empire ends with Ukraine. And if Russia is successful in Ukraine, that's not the end of it. And this to kind of bring us back full circle to the issue of the Baltic states that we were discussing in the, in, in, in the first half. I mean, the domino theory is not always uh, correct as we, as we painfully know, um, specifically people of my generation, but yeah. in this instance, I think it is correct. Well, also, instance, I mean, you I know, it is it, correct. It, it, there's a lot of demographic conflation when people talk about, oh, you know, let's look at the history of Soviet warfare. Well, excuse me, Soviet warfare is not Russian warfare. Soviet warfare encompassed quite a lot of ethnicities and cultures and people. And, you know, I mean, every major conflict fought in Ukraine, Ukrainians were to some degree fighting alongside uh, Moscow, right? From right. The, the Russian Civil War, uh, all through, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the, the Russo-Polish War, uh, World War II, et cetera. And this is the first time where, I mean, unless you want to count the, the so-called separatists in Donbass, which I, I would just, you know, I mean, essentially they're, they're seconded into the Russian military anyway. But this is the, the first time where the, the, the overwhelming majority of Ukrainians are ranged against the Russians. Mm. So I think it's, it's important to keep that in mind uh, because I keep seeing these, these analogs or these comparisons to, to Soviet military history. And I think it's just, it's historically illiterate. Um, and yeah, look, another myth, frankly, and Putin doesn't back down. Well, remember, uh, how many how many essays did we read that this whole thing is because of NATO expansion, right? This whole this is the only reason that Putin's going to war in Ukraine is that NATO parked tanks on his lawn. Uh, Sweden and Finland decide, oh, we're going to join NATO now because we don't want to get invaded. And Putin's response is he shrugs. Oh, excuse me, I thought NATO expansion, I mean, the entire Baltic Sea is now a great NATO lake to, again, right. quote, President Ilvis. With the exception, I guess, if you want to go to the you know, Gulf of Finland and St. Petersburg, but like, you know, where is the Putinist backlash, retaliation? I mean, the Swedes I've talked to, the Finns I've talked to, they are frankly um, astounded that there hasn't been this amplification of active measures aimed at their populations. I've seen some some like one poster sent to me recently was uh, Uncle Sam with the puppet strings. And I forget what the, the Finnish cartoon character it looks like a giant white hippo. But uh, on the Swedish side, it's Pippi Longstockings. Like this is this is all the Russians have to right. throw it at, at the accession of these two, frankly, hugely significant Scandinavian countries. I mean, Finland, you get a 830 mile border that Russia will now share with a NATO member state. Well, right. how is that for strategic 
blowback. I mean, and where's the response? There is no response. It was muted you know? in public. I, I, they, they cannot be happy with this. It was no, very muted in public. Again, you know, what have they done to? I mean, I, I, I would only assume they were prevailing upon Turkey to veto accession, and it looks, uh, to all intents and purposes, like the Turks are are, are basically okay with it. Um, unless there's some kind of eleventh hour surprise that Erdogan has up his sleeve. No, it's past him, it's, but... it's it's moving on. I mean that that yeah. that was that was resolved in Madrid, and now yeah. member states are already ratifying. Basically, I think my last count, about half of NATO is already ratified. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a running count going on on social media. We're bumping up against the end here, Michael. Is there anything you wanted to add on the the, the lessons of Syria, or or even in the first half of the stuff we talked talked about about the Baltic states? Uh no, I mean, I, you know, I think it was a pretty wide ranging and, and yeah. you know, in-depth conversation, as it always is on your show, Brian. And I appreciate that. Um, you know, look, uh, it, it's sort of a mixed bag for me as somebody who's been like a longtime Russia watcher and a reporter, you know, dealing at all levels on, on, on this country uh, from corruption to intelligence operations. I mean, I'm writing a book about, it, you know, the, the GRU, which goes back to yeah. the founding in 1918. Um Looking forward and, to know, reading that one. Hey, I'm looking forward to, to writing that one, or at least finishing the writing. Of it. Chapter one, chapter on Ukraine has now become three. But I, I will say, like I, I, you know, I know that um, well, most people, but especially those of us uh, in the West, and and okay, let, let me just be self-hating for a moment. Americans have a very short attention span. But as I say, you know, the lessons of the last five months have come fast and furiously, and they have been profound. And I'm already beginning to see people not fully appreciate them and, you know, continue to remember these lessons going forward. There's been a lot of backsliding, intellectual, moral backsliding, which I think is unnecessary. Um, and the idea that, you know, Russia is fated to win or to come out on top, we have yet to sort of emancipate ourselves psychologically from this notion. I mean, Putin, the master strategist, that's another myth, frankly. Right. I mean, the guy has done more to damage a country that was, frankly, sitting pretty after 20 years of elite capture, economic integration, uh, the seconding of, of Western statesmen and, and, and former leaders and chancellors and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and in, in the space of you know a week, he, he basically just drove it back, not just 20 years, 30 years, I mean, almost 50 years really. So that pariah status needs to be maintained because you know, as I say, this is a proper genocide that they're committing. Um, and I don't think, you know, the, the price of gas at the pump should right. alter our, our conception of what needs to be done here. Uh, and there, there's a way to go about this without being stupid, foolhardy and reckless, you know. And I mean, nobody, least of all myself, is advocating NATO go to war with Russia. I mean, the, the, you know, these arguments, these debates about no fly zones, et cetera, et cetera. Frankly, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see that they've fallen by the wayside. But, you know, Ukraine has done individually what NATO was founded to do collectively, and it's done it with ample resources provided by the West, but it's Ukrainian civilians, it's Ukrainian soldiers who've been paying the price for this. And that, as I say, that's a sacrifice that doesn't just stay confined to their own borders. That's a sacrifice that, that has wide ranging repercussions for, for all of Europe and, and the world. Uh, so we shouldn't lose sight of that. Yeah, this you mentioned the the genocide. I mean, I would say you know anybody that is calling for a return to business as usual with Russia when this is over uh, needs to be reminded of that. 
um, relentlessly because those calls for a return to business of usual, as usual are going to come uh, soon enough. Um, yep. and on that note, I, I'm going to wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. Unfortunately, I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from New York City is vet, has been veteran journalist Michael Weiss, news director at New Lines Magazine, contributing editor at the Daily Beast, and director of special investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Michael's also the author of the New York Times bestseller, ISIS Inside the Army of Terror. Michael, thank you as always for an enlightening discussion. You got it. Anytime. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Dylan Holberg is ably filling in for Lance Ligas in the virtual control room, keeping the lights on and all complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. Dylan also handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes, and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.